Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we take a look at what's in the magazine with the writers behind the pieces. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. On this week's episode, as households start to face hosepipe bans across the country, who's to blame for the water shortages? Plus, is it time for Tory socialism? And finally, a sexual civil war is underway in France. Why are the nudes fighting the prudes? First up, I'm joined by Jane Forsyth, our political editor, and Kieran Nelson, spokesperson for Anglian Water. James, in the magazine this week, Ross Clark places the blame firmly at the door of the water companies for the shortages that we're seeing right now. Would you agree with him? I think that you obviously can talk about the drought and the like, but I think this country should be able to cope with that. I mean, there has been a a problem of underinvestment. And I mean, that is a problem of the regulatory approach to the water companies. I think we have this debate where we act as if there are only two models. Things can either be privatised or nationalised. When actually, I think you could have privatised utilities, but far more stringent requirements on them to reinvest the profits that they make back into providing the necessary infrastructure. And I think the difference between a, a water company and, and, and other companies is the householder has no choice who they get their water from. They're in, they're in a particular water area, so there, there is no market like that. And but, but for that reason, it is essentially a licence to print money. And I think these companies should be required to invest far more than they do in the infrastructure. I think it is it, it is frankly close to scandalous how much water has been lost through leakage and the fact that we are not building new reservoirs. You know, all of these things I think could be addressed by creating a better balance that says yes, these water companies can make profits, but they need to be reinvesting the vast majority of those profits in upgrading the infrastructure to deal with both climate change and, and a growing population. Ross makes the point that there hasn't been a substantial reservoir built since 1981. Kieran, would you agree that there's been a lack of investment in the water industry? Well, I wouldn't agree that there's been a lack of investment in resilience, which I think is what we're talking about here. Uh, The water industry has spent something like £610 billion since uh, privatisation. And a huge amount of money, a huge amount of that money is is going into resilience. I think when you call on reservoirs specifically, you're right to say that that no significant reservoir infrastructure has has been built recently. But let's be honest, reservoirs are are expensive. They take a very long time both to get approval for uh, and then to actually deliver. And then you've got the time to fill them and actually get them into supply. So I think it's absolutely right that water companies look at more efficient ways to, uh, to, to basically ensure that there is more water available to go around before we move to reservoirs. So if I take, for instance, Anglian Water, the region uh, that obviously uh, I work within, we're investing something like £400 million to create a a 500-kilometre pipeline that will bring water down from areas of the north of our region, where it is wetter, where we have a little bit more water available to us, down to the the south and the east, to Essex, to Colchester, to places where more water is needed. That's the kind of resilience investment that is uh, is quicker and easier to deliver than perhaps a uh, whole-scale reservoir. That's just one side of it, of course. You've then also got the demand side. So if, if, if supply is one part of the answer, perhaps demand is the other. And that's why we've gone really hard on making sure that metering is very widespread. We have something like 90% of our customers uh, now metered. And we know that meters encourage people to use less water. All of these are cheaper and quicker to deliver than building reservoirs. It doesn't mean reservoirs aren't part of the answer. They are. There's, I think, 18 of them on the on the decks for building over the next uh, couple of decades. But you've got to do the cheaper and the more efficient stuff first, particularly during a time when, when, when cost of living is under pressure. And Kieran, how big a problem are leaks? 
Well, across the industry, leakage is a bit of a bet noir, and I don't think there's a single company out there would suggest that uh, it, it's a done deal. It, it, it's a job that is fixed. Um, my company, Anglian Water, we, we lead the industry in leakage. We have less than half the national average of leaks on the basis of, of water loss per kilometre of main per day. Um, but let's just put into context what it is we're talking about. These aren't sort of gushing geezers that people have uh, sort of uh, stereotypical perceptions of. These are tiny fishes on many hundreds of thousands of kilometres of, of pipe that run underground. Um, we've got something like 500 people out there day in, day out, finding, fixing and, and repairing these leaks a quarter of which, I should add, are actually beyond the limit of the Anglian Water Network. They sit in, uh, in customers' homes, uh, or, you know, on, on domestic plumbing. Now, our job isn't just to say to the customer, well, that's your job to fix it. Our job is to help customers identify where they are. And that's where things like smart meters come into play, because they help us understand what water's going where, and then help us allow customers the opportunity to, re- to repair those leaks. But leakage is a problem, and I wouldn't sit here and say that we think it's a done job at all. James, what role should the government be playing in this, if any? So I, I mean, the government should uh, should encourage the regulator to, to have stiffer, and, and if necessary, legislate for this, stiffer requirements about reinvesting profits in infrastructure. I think you, I completely hear all the arguments about whether reservoirs are the most efficient way of doing it or not. I think that what most people feel, and obviously Ang- Anglian is an, is an exception to this, most people think, well, hang on a second, why am I being told that I can't water my plants, this particular bugbear of mine, and yet you've got these water companies paying out big dividends, big executive pay packages, and people people question the fairness of that when they have no choice about who supplies their water. Now, listening to what Kieran's saying, you know, I might be te- quite tempted to move from Thames water to Anglian water, but I, I can't do that. And, and that, that is, and because of that, I think that you should be much more unsparing in the requirements that you place on these companies, because it, it is not a normal marketplace. You cannot just go and shop, you can't shop around for your water. You are, you are required to get it from one firm. And it is clear from the leakage tables and, and and who and who is imposing a host pipe ban and who is not? But some of these companies are better run than others. Some of these companies are doing a better job with dealing with these problems. I mean, given that the regulators should be much stricter about requiring these companies to reinvest their profits in the necessary infrastructure. Kieran, how would you respond to that? I think a fair point is made about the requirement for investment. And I think we probably have to look at perhaps, you know, what may have been a missed opportunity when when the cost of debt was particularly low in the last price review period. And perhaps we could have afforded to put more investment, more opportunity for investment into our our, our plans for for this five years. What, of course, we've got to do is to, to balance the requirement for the opportunity rather for investment, the requirement for investment with the need to look after things from a cost of living perspective. We, we have got to keep bills affordable. Of course, that's the job of the regulator. And I think the job of the company is for us to step up and say, well, we firmly believe that this investment is required. We, we co-create these business plans with our customers um, and then to put them to the regulator in a way that, you know, they they almost don't really have any ability to say that they're, they're not fair, they're not right, they, they, they shouldn't be delivered. Just to come to the point about dividends and, and payouts, I mean, let's not forget that quite a few companies have taken significant steps here. My own company, Anglian Water, we haven't paid a dividend th- until this year, since 2017. So there's been five years when, when our owners haven't taken a single penny out of the business. Um, and at the same time, we've mess- invested you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions I- into resilience. So there is a spectrum across the industry. I-, I-, I fully accept that. And I do think we're staring down the barrel of a future where we've got more people and fewer raindrops, and we are going to have to invest an awful lot more in resilience. 
And Kieran, Ross makes the point in his piece that a lot of the advice issued often feels quite patronising, whether it's wash your hair less often or mm. fill up your paddling pool less often. I mean, how much, how much of a difference can individuals actually make if the water companies are themselves leaking huge amounts of water? Well, look, it's a bit trite for me to say we're all in this together. But frankly, there are elements on both sides of the equation. Companies need to do more uh, to keep more water in the pipes. Uh, and as I said, you know, Anglian taking a, a, a real, you know, world leading position on that, actually. Some of the technology we're deploying to to reduce the amount of leakage that does occur. I mean, we fixed something like 37,000 leaks on our, our, our network last year, smashing the target that we were set by, by the regulator. But that's only going to go so far. That That's not going to fix the problem. I mean, even fixing all the leaks on every single pipe wouldn't be enough to uh, uh, to fix to meet the shortfall, if you like, the water deficit that we're, we're facing in the, in the future. Customers do have a role to play. Um, I, I would like to think that we engage with customers in a uh, as grown up a way as we possibly can, but to appealing to as broad a spectrum of people as we possibly can. And I think you know we co-create everything from the business plan, you know, right through to asking them for what their ideas would be about how we might save water. It's a fair challenge to make sure we get the tone right, uh, but I do think it's really important that we engage our customers because there are elements on both sides of the equation that need to take action. I think there's also a consent point right which is people are much more likely to take measures to conserve their water use and the like if they feel that water companies are doing everything they can if they see lots of regular leaks not fixed if they see big big profits and big dividends being paid out and under investment people are less likely to take please to you know have a shower not a bath and all that kind of stuff they're not going to take that as seriously because they're not they are not going to think that this is is reasonable given that the companies are not upholding their end of the of the bargain and just finally i'd like to ask you both about hose pipe bans and mary killen writes this week about whether neighbors should indeed report each other for flouting them kieran what do you think should people dob in their neighbors if they spot them watering their plants I mean, look, this isn't about snooping on people, is it? And frankly, people who are looking for ways to get around hosepipe bans are seeking out exemptions. I think they've kind of missed the point. I mean, we don't have a hosepipe ban in place in the Anglian water region, but that doesn't mean people should run around with abandon, you know, watering their begonias left, right and centre. You only need to look out of the window and see how dry it is to know that it's a pretty sensible thing to, to be putting your, your hosepipe down, perhaps, and, uh, and giving the, the environment a, a bit of a rest. So I don't think this is about snooping on neighbours. Frankly, I think that misses the point. I've never understood this in that if at the end of August or in September or whenever this heat wave comes to an end, there's one shiny green lawn and bunch of dusty lawns. Isn't it being quite obvious who has been flouting the hosepipe ban? <laughs> Thank you, James and Kieran. Next, in this week's issue, Tim Stanley has written about his Tory socialist vision for Britain. He joins me now, along with Annabel Denham, Director of Communications at the IEA. Tim, you, you say in the magazine that it's time for what you call Tory socialism. What exactly do you mean by that? I chose the phrase Tory socialism partly to be cheeky and to get attention. What I'm really describing is Tory state building. And I'm describing something that's already happening. 
It's happening because infrastructure has obviously been wound down. It's happening because in the wake of COVID and Brexit, there's a recognition that the government needs to intervene more. For instance, it needs to intervene to help build a domestic pharmaceuticals industry in case we have another virus. So I'm describing what's already happening, but I'm also making a challenge to the traditional or the, or the most recent way in which conservatives have regarded government. The, the philosophy has been you begin by cutting government, cutting taxes and getting out of the way of the individual. And that'll leave us to be freer and wealthier. And that's a good goal. But there is an older Tory tradition which begins by saying, well, what's this, what society do you actually want at the end of this? And then you reverse it. You begin by saying, here's the society we want then here's the economic policy that might suit that. So, for example, if you want a society in which British people make things in this country and export it, well, part of that is going to be free market economics, like low taxes and deregulation, but it might also mean state intervention to pick winners and promote them. It might mean use of tariffs. I know that's very unfashionable, but it can mean a whole load of things that the state does. So, in other words, it's a culture-led economic policy. You start by saying, what is the conservative vision of society? Strong families, yeah, strong individual, strong communities, and you pick the economic, uh, if you like, dessert trolley, you pick the different things on it that's going to do that, rather than being led wholly by a low-tax free market ideology. Annabel, what was your reaction to Tim's vision for the Conservative Party? Well, I think Tim's right that the future direction of the party is now front of mind, and that the low-tax bidding war we've been witnessing over recent weeks probably isn't a good thing. But in my view, that's because there needs to be more to a policy agenda, even a radical policy agenda, than making promises to slash, slash taxes that may be difficult to deliver. The Tories will need to address how they unite their uneasy coalition of three types of voter and how it can the party can deploy its chameleonic nature, which has allowed it to be in power for nearly 50 years in 77, in order to secure victory at the next general election and general elections beyond that. And that will be immensely difficult. And I think, admittedly, it may be that the sorts of solutions that I would like to see the new leader of the Conservative Party pursue are not the ones that will enable it to be electorally successful in 2024. So when it comes to the kind of country that Tim would like to live in, uh, it does in many ways sound appealing, but we need to bear in mind that it may not to others. And it's markets that offer choice, not the state. And people who support a free economy don't also believe that everything can be reduced to money and transactions and that there is no need for character, virtue, non-market exchange, morality and so on. But it's markets that are about free human cooperation in the economic sphere. Intrinsically, they are about people. And so in a sense, it's society and, and culture is at the centre of the economic discussions rather than being distinct from it. I think also that the piece does throw up a number of follow-on questions, such as how do we improve the NHS or build more houses or restore a high street? What are the policy answers to some of the suggestions that he's making? How do we respond to the changes in our society brought about by migration and absorbing people from different cultures, which incidentally markets handle better than governments? What is the optimal size of the state and how do we handle the way in which it generates pressure groups, unions and blobs, which pursue their own rather than the public interest and can never be dislodged. So, as I said, there are many things on which we agree, but I think it does throw up a number of follow-on questions 
as well as perhaps we would have some disagreement over what is best for the country going forward. Well, Tim, do you want to respond to some of those questions? Certainly. On on the first point about uh, free markets and morality, I think that's absolutely right. Free markets can't flourish without morality. So so to a certain extent, the governments have to promote it. They have to promote the kind of virtues within which a free market can flourish. For instance, governments have to promote trust. They have to promote honesty and things like that. Equally, uh, markets can also produce Let's not say produce a morality, but they can encourage good morals, because, again, in order for us to trust each other, we have to be honest. So there's a virtuous circle there. I'm, I'm not disputing that at all. I just think that in order for those things to work, there's got to be a, the state has to, to a certain extent, referee it and marshal it, because the, uh, the alternative is also true, that markets run rampant can encourage a, a bad morality. And I think we started to see that at the end of the Thatcher era. We, we started to see an individualism and a selfishness, which is very untory in the way that it undermined community continuity and it, and it undermined virtue and morality. So that's a problem. But another problem is that increasingly in the culture war, it is actually corporations that are promoting the lifestyle and the cultural perspective that conservatives hate. It's not just state organisations. It's not just teachers and bureaucrats promoting these things, these woke ideas. It's also increasingly businesses. My, my view is there is a culture war going on. I don't like it. I'd rather it didn't happen. But you either choose, you have to choose a side and you have to fight and you have to win. If you don't, then either through the government or the market, the alternative vision of society will be imposed. I would love to live in a society in which we can all go away and just do our own thing. But the the experience of the last 10 years is that's not how it works. Institutions get captured, they promote an ideology, and unless you're fighting back against it, you're just going to get rolled over. And on the point about, so following on from what I've suggested, what about the size of the, what about the NHS? What about the size of the state? I can't answer those questions in 1,100 words. And I want to stress that some of the answers to those will actually be deregulation and privatisation. My point is it's a genuine mix of policies rather than something that's ideologically led. So in the case of the NHS, a Tory socialist vision would be perfectly happy with a French-style mixed economy of healthcare provision. There's no reason why churches and commu- why churches and charities shouldn't run hospitals. It's not just about building monopolistic state. And that's where I want to distinguish between Tory socialism and leftist socialism. I'm talking about a socialism which predates Marx. I'm talking about a, a socialism which is rather more spiritual. The, the left-wing socialism is, yes, monopolistic, state-driven, and rather grim in its egalitarianism, uh, whereas a Tory one uh, would be much more open uh, to, to the roles for the market and the roles for communities to run things. It doesn't necessarily have to end in the state running everything. And while some might argue that the Tories have moved largely to the left over the past few years, particularly during the pandemic, I mean, how much do you think that's to blame for the soaring inflation that we're currently seeing at the moment? Sure. Well, it's certainly the case that the Overton window swung very far to the left over the course of the pandemic. And the challenge for those who favour free markets now is to move it back towards the right. Look, the cupboard is bare after COVID and big increases in NHS spending. And I think we've tested the big state response to near destruction. And that's why I believe that supply side reforms could be popular. If you deregulate childcare, for instance, then bills could come down. As I say, you know, people who support a free economy don't, don't think that everything can be reduced to money and transactions, but nonetheless, supply side reform and bringing down costs would have a huge 
impact on households and families and uh, society and the economy at large. I think it's absolutely essential that we get the state out of people's hair. And I, I saw another interesting piece in The Spectator this week on Coffee House by John Oxley, which I thought made a point that really resonated with me, that the Tory party is not driven by some grand policy agenda, but simply grasping at shiny objects. He says it passes repetitive, unnecessary and ultimately inoffensive laws that criminalise things that are already illegal. And this is absolutely spot on. My concern with a Conservative Party that is trying to be all things to all people is that we would see a continuation of this under the new leader. And it's too easy for politicians to forget that regulation comes at a cost, that the state getting in people's way gets at a cost, even though warnings have for years been issued on the negative effects of regulation. It's repeatedly justified for economic, social and environmental purposes. But every additional direction to private enterprise and individuals reduces freedom to operate, and that imposes direct and indirect costs. A 10% increase in regulation, a recent IEA paper found, has been associated with around a 0.5% to 1% increase in prices. And Tim, just finally, I mean, what you outline in your piece, particularly towards the end, is a, is a somewhat nostalgic view of, of what Britain needs. You talk at the end about wanting pretty towns with butchers and bakers. You don't quite go as far as saying candlestick makers, although that's, <laughs> that might be useful for blackouts. But do you think nostalgia really is what Britain needs right now? <laughs> well, I, I have long argued that nostalgia is useful because uh, conservatives believe in what Yoram Hazoni in his uh, fascinating new book says is historical empiricism. Uh, you begin by saying what works. Well, you can't tell what's going to work in the future. The only sort of pool of data that you have is what happened in the past. So nostalgia, where you simply try to recreate the good and the bad without any distinction or prejudice, would be madness, right? People are not nostalgic for bad things. They're not nostalgic, for instance, about the Second World War because they like the idea of being bombed or dying in a war. But what they can be nostalgic for and, and what the people are nostalgic for can give us a sense of what it is they want and what is good. So when people are nostalgic for the past, they're usually nostalgic for things like communities, they're nostalgic for when they feel Britain was strong, uh, when they think it was moral and when it had a, a sense of, of virtue and character. So, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not all for bringing things back just because they're oldie-worldy and nice. Although I am, I am for bringing things back that I think were excellent. So I think that probably air travel, although probably was more dangerous in the past, was a lot more comfortable, for example. And that's because companies weren't simply interested on squeezing as many people as possible into a plane, but actually giving them a luxurious experience. So I'm in favour of excellence. But really what I'm, I'm in favour of is, is nostalgia as a way of sifting through the past to find that which was moral and good and then shamelessly promoting it. I don't see why you wouldn't do that. And, and one thing that I, I find disturbing is society's tendency to junk things and move on. Although having said that, uh, everyone loves a period drama. Even markets have, have cottoned on to the fact that people like old stuff. And the past is very much a consumer product, one which lots of people want to buy. Well, Annabelle and Tim, thank you very much for joining and finally, what's going on in France? Jonathan Miller writes about a rift amongst the French nudists, and he joins me now alongside Louise Perry, who wrote The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. 
Jonathan, in the magazine this week, you write about France going through a new sexual civil war, as you put it. Can you outline where the battle lines are? Well, they seem to be everywhere. Uh, but uh, the, the one I focused on, because mainly because with my low-based journalistic instincts, I thought this would be a good time to have a soft summer read. They focus on the beaches in France, where there seems to be this kind of Civil war going on between the sort of wholesome uh, health and efficiency naturism represented by the, uh, the, the, the nudie establishment of the Fédération Française de Naturisme and this kind of new group of, of libertines who are colonizing parts of beaches and using them for purposes that are really quite uh, disturbing. Uh, I mean, there's a beach quite near where I live in the south of France called Cap Dagde, which is referred to by a local policeman I know as, as the biggest bordello in Europe, and which generates gigantic quantities of pornography for all of these terrible platforms that uh, Louise has written about. This conflict between the traditional naturists and the libertines has actually even resulted in, in a homicide, because a few days ago in Lyon, on a, on a shady riverbank, a man, an exhibitionist, was disporting himself in front of a woman and was actually shot dead by um, a traditional natura, naturist who'd brought a, a, his rifle along in his beach bag. So it's a, it's a conflict of philosophy. It's potentially quite violent, but more than anything else, I think it's a signifier of a big change of mood that is going on in France. After confinement, after these lockdowns, people seem to be... Uh, sex seems to have been pushed out by a sort of pornographication of society. And there's data that shows now young people are not really having sex anymore or exploring each other. They're sending each other naked selfies. And when I've asked fr uh, friends who have adolescent children, do you think your children are having sex? They say, not only are they not having sex, we're not having sex. So I'm, I'm just, think something is going on here. I mean, not just the, the phenomenon of, of two contradictory trends simultaneously occurring, but maybe the metamorphosis of the sexual revolution that you know, we remember from the late 1960s to something entirely different and potentially equally difficult to cope with. Louise, you've written a lot about the sexual revolution and the sexual counter-revolution. Do you think what Jonathan's talking about fits in with the trends that you've observed? I think we have a similar sort of thing happening here, even if we're not having... Um gun battles on riverbanks. The French, as ever, are, you know, outpacing us in terms of the excitingness of their scandals. But I think that same paradox that Jonathan describes so well in his article is at play here, where we have on the one hand a kind of hyper-sexualised public life. We have so much more racy kind of imagery on the streetscape than we ever had in previous eras. Sex scenes are completely routine now on TV, all of this kind of stuff. So sex is absolutely everywhere, but also people are having less sex, which seems like a really strange kind of paradox. I write in my book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, I write about there's this kind of quasi-medical syndrome called death grip syndrome, 
which porn addicts use to describe the problem when you use so much porn that you basically become impotent. And this is a widespread problem on people who use porn regularly. And I write about what I call cultural death grip syndrome, which is, I think, a kind of cultural analogue to that, where you have super, super sexualised public life and then simultaneously a peculiarly repressed private life. And part of the story there is to do with marriage, is to do with the fact that people are getting married less often and and later in life. So lots of these people in their 20s and even 30s who are remaining virgins, who are not having sexual relationships, in a previous era, they would be more likely to because they would be more likely to get married younger. And regardless of what kind of jokes on anniversary cards in WH Smith might suggest, married people have a lot more sex than unmarried people. So that's part of the story. I think the other part of the story as well is is more, I don't know, a little bit more Freudian. Like maybe if we're not repressing sexual desire in the way that we might have done in previous eras, it it loses its luster a little bit. I mean, if anyone who reads historical romantic novels or watches period dramas or whatever will notice that the amazing frisson of, of like a formal dance or only having like restricted access with a chaperone to someone you fancy is incredibly exciting (laughs) right and I wonder if for young people who live such unrestricted lives in that sense sex actually loses some of its appeal and that might be part of the reason why we're seeing we're seeing both boys and girls retreating and when they are having sex with each other it seems to be more likely to be casual encounters it's not like loving, committed relationships. So it's a sad story. And it seems to be happening everywhere, including apparently in France. Mm. And Jonathan, do you think, I mean, I suppose the British are perhaps known for being somewhat repressed when it comes to their sexuality. But do you think the French will be shocked to see themselves being written up as becoming more prudish? I think it's, you know, it's complicated as a cop-out answer. There's so many simultaneous things happening here. You've got, you know, a gigantic Islamic community in France which has extraordinarily different ideas about sex and marriage than the Francais, de souche. You have a younger generation that has been never known an era without the internet, the effects of which it's still very early to determine. You have an older generation that was schooled in the sort of 60s sexual revolution, but has seen these sexual heroes, uh, Michel Foucault, uh, you know, accused of the most terrible crimes and, 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 and going to Morocco and, and just, you know, abusing children. And now on top of this, you have this new layer, which I'm fascinated to know what Louise might think about this, this new layer in which gender has somehow move to the foreground, which I think it must be even more confusing when we're teaching children <clears throat> to question very, very fundamentally who they are from a very, very early age, and we're moving a sexual preference onto a public stage to the extent of, of de- devoting weeks to various pride events, to having drag queen story hours. You know, I'm 70 years old, so perhaps I can be expected to be somewhat more shocked by this than my my more liberal-minded children. Uh, But I'm very, very confused. I I really can't tell what's going on. I do know that the piece I wrote scratched a tiny corner 
of the surface of this. And I know that Louise's book has gone into this in much more depth, but I can't help but think that the story is not yet fully explored. It is interesting, isn't it, that we've got this kind of increasingly gender-fluid world. It's increasingly common to have young people identifying in all sorts of you know weird and wonderful ways. It's, it's funny that back in my day, I say age 30, but that all of the kind of adolescent anxiety and hand-wringing over boys seems to now be replaced by hand-wringing over one's gender identity and expression in girls' schools up and down the country. So I don't know what to make of that. I think it's interesting that we, that yes, we see, as we have a more sort of gender-neutral public life we have a you know people of the past used to live very homosocial lives really they like mostly you'd only really interact with members of the opposite sex if they were your kin whereas now we have male and female friendships are completely normalized we have um, workplaces where men and women mix freely etc and then we also have the rise of things like BDSM as a really really mainstream form of sexual practice and what BDSM does interestingly even though it's often represented as being sort of gender-bending progressive whatever I think what it really does is it's like a monstrously exaggerated forms of femininity and masculinity and I think it's really interesting that that's become much more prominent at exactly the same time that femininity and masculinity have been flattened and I wonder if there's an extent to which people really crave that kind of polarity between the sexes and then when it's removed in one area of life it kind of pops up in another area of life I think in a I think in a much less healthy way I think that actually you know there are positive things about traditional masculinity and femininity which you don't see at all in BDSM so I see that as an unfortunate trend. Louise are there any other countries that are bucking this trend obviously fertility rates and marriage rates seem to be falling across the west but are there any countries that seem to be doing something a bit different? Not as far as I'm aware, which is which is in itself really interesting, isn't it? It suggests that there's something about affluence. Because what you see consistently across the countries which have really falling birth rates and the, and the sex recession, which is so much more profound in places like Japan and South Korea, you know, this is absolutely not a uniquely European problem, is that the countries where that's the most pronounced are also the countries that are the richest, right? Which seems to suggest that there is something about becoming richer that that seems to have this effect on our on our intimate lives the link is clearly there but I don't quite know what it is yet (laughs) and Jonathan in your piece you you talk about the younger generation obviously sending millions of nude selfies to each other what do the older generation of French nudists make of that I mean are they are they pro it they see it as a sort of Gateway into I, I think you know they they're quite, they are you know they all claim to be quite prudish, but but I think Louise is is is, is acute uh, when she talks about BDSM because I think Philip Larkin said sexual intercourse began in 1963 between Chatterley and the Beatles' first LP, and I wonder whether Chatterley, in effect, <clears throat> has progressed today where pornographic. Um, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, has become this unbelievable business worth billions and where certain psychologies are being played out with potentially dire, uh, certainly dire consequences for dignity and for identity. And what we're seeing on the beaches of Cap Dagd, which are these, you know, 
disp over displays of, 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 of sex being performed by, for, literally for audiences in a part of the country certainly controlled by organized crime gangs. And what we see on the internet and uh, the, the immense amount of money that's being made in this exploitation of pornography and the consequences that are becoming evident for this first generation that has grown up with this. I mean, there was a time <clears throat> when a teenage boy in England might hide a copy of Playboy or Razzle or something under the mattress. But now every kid has access to a handheld device which gives them you know, unlimited access to really anything. What is the consequence of this going to be? I think it's potentially very, very dangerous. I mean, it's very hard for a kind of dyed-in-the-wool liberal like me to say we should be banning porn. But at least we should be understanding the, the consequences of a pornography that has become ever more extreme because of the, uh, the, the, the decreasing efficacy of porn as people use it more and more and abuse it more and more. And where that may lead us, and is that going to lead us into even darker avenues uh, than we had as a consequence of the Soison Huitard, uh, the Michel Foucault, who were, you know, buggering boys in Morocco while the establishment looked on, and whose reputation is still largely protected. So I don't know. I mean, it's a terrible thing for a journalist to admit. I don't know. I don't know where we're going, but my, my instincts tell me it's not a good place. Louise, what would, what would be your prediction for what the next stage is in the sexual revolution or counter-revolution? It's definitely the case that Gen Z are much more likely to be reacting against the sort of excesses of sexual hyperliberalism. And if you go on any social media platform, you'll come across girls, particularly who are really negative about hookup culture. You'll come across boys who are foregoing porn. I mean, there is an increasingly prominent movement of men who are turning against porn not generally for sort of feminist ethical reasons more often because they recognize the harmful effect that it has on them and the fact that it is a very addictive and a very addictive product it has a very deleterious effect on the user so i think that there are sort of the stirrings of resistance of whether or not this uh, this grows into a much larger movement i guess remains to be seen well, jonathan and louise thank you very much for joining and that's everything this week I do hope you've enjoyed it, and if you'd like to read the pieces we've discussed, you can find them all in this week's magazine. A Spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited.